So eventually, on any journey we take, including and especially our journey with Jesus, we reach crossroads, divides in the road, decisions that must be made, not just about what we're going to do tomorrow or for the next year, what kind of job or the like, but what we believe, the ideas that are going to shape the rest of the journey. Sometimes we confuse the idea of God's sovereignty with the notion that all of those choices are predetermined or that they matter so significantly that every one of them's uh, an issue. Of course, that's really not the idea of God's sovereign work in our life, and he did give us free will, and fortunately, many of those crossroads are just the things that provide variety in life. My guess is God wasn't so concerned that you chose the red blouse to come to church with today. God's probably more concerned about how we make most decisions. Would you agree with that? But every once in a while, we reach a place where the decisions we'll make are game changers. Where we know that we're about to commit ourselves to either a direction or a belief that will be so important that from now on, nothing will be the same again. And so even though we look at this journey that Jesus invites us to, as we have over these three weeks, and recognize that he calls anyone to a journey to come and discover. We do remember that his promise, which is a hopeful thing, is that in that journey he's going to change us. And last week we talked about the role of good times in our life, something that most of us don't ever consider. Why would a loving God let good things happen to people? Not really a crisis of faith for most of us because we presume that we ought to have good things. It's when things go bad that we wonder what Jesus is doing wrong. What we see in Scripture is that good things are not the reward for good faith. But the good seasons are often the precursor, as we saw through the prophet speaking to Israel of its early days when you were... When you were a child, I called you out of Egypt. I carried you. I taught you to walk. Those are the seasons that we get to watch, to stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. And in watching what he does and rejoicing over it, we have an opportunity to build our faith. But there are moments ahead where change will occur. And no change occurs without being put in a moment of decision. And no crossroads that matters most is something that we come to always joyfully. In fact, I would say this. You really only know the strength of your belief when you come and stand at the precipice of unbelief. When God brings you somewhere on your journey where you stand and in a teetering moment look over at the possibility that what you're about to commit to is not true and imagine a future without that belief and commitment, that's when we really come to understand the depth of our commitments, of our faith. See, that's why the hard seasons, the trials are so critical to the recreative work that Jesus wants to do in us as we're following him. Make no mistake, to follow Jesus 
is to take up a cross. But through that cross is life abundant, life that is truly life. There's a great song, maybe we'll teach it to you next week if I can pull it out, by Billy Foote. And the main phrase is this, if we want to live the life, we have to die the death. Jesus brings us to that point. And the thing is, he doesn't just point the way, he leads us to the cross. He personally, for the joy set before him, endures the cross. There is a cross somewhere in the journey of all of our lives, a game changer that is about life and death. And it's unavoidable. We would like to say that it's all just about a journey. It's all about discovery, and it's all good. But at some point, Jesus says, it's not good to stay where you are. New life is ahead. And there are points of commitment and discovery that God has for us. C.S. Lewis, who, uh, it's amazing, he died in the 1960s, was born just before the 1900s, is as fresh a voice about authentic Christianity as there still is today. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, talks about these moments of decision where we're either choosing life or death, and he calls those a moment that contains all moments. I love that. What a picture that Jesus brings us to this moment where everything that we have experienced to this point, everything we're going to experience is somehow shaped right here. It's a moment that in itself contains all moments. We all experience those. I was thinking about um, those kind of moments that contain all moments in my life. And one of the stories, of course, that comes to mind is uh, how I fell in love with Vitalina. We were both Bible college students, and I was a senior. I knew Vit. She came in as a freshman. And um, Vit, uh, when we were younger, had this, how many of you remember Dorothy Hamill? Yeah, all four of you that are my age or older here. Gold medalist ice skater. Well, Vit had a Dorothy Hamill haircut, and I got to tell you, it looked better on Vit than it did on Dorothy. So Vit caught my attention. And, you know, in Bible college, we were just kids trying to outgrow our legalistic backgrounds. I'm, I'm still a recovering fundamentalist, I like to tell people. There's a support group for people like me. We were just all trying to grow up, and so we didn't really know how to date very well, but the guys who were athletes, we had this way of showing up at the girls' dorm and knocking and thinking it was a privilege for whoever we'd call out to come and we'd take them to friendlies. And I, I was one of those guys who did that, and, and uh, one night Vit was on my radar. And so I just, you know, hey, I'm, I'm one of the, we just knock and we call a girl and we've got, we've got a date. Now that's how we thought of it, of course. The girls didn't see it that way. But we were pretty naive and arrogant. So I knock and I ask for Vit, and she, she turned me down. I wasn't used to that. I later found out that Frank Derman, who was the captain of the basketball team, taller, good-looking Frank Derman, was out playing basketball, and Frank had expressed interest in Vit, and Vit was fully expecting Frank to ask her out that night, which is why she turned me down. I'm still dealing with it. You're right. I am. And I didn't really even know Vit. Didn't, it wasn't really so much about Vit. I just knew she was a nice girl. We sat together over lunch once, and uh, she was a nice girl. 
Then there was a time when, as a youth pastor, I, I had the, this Bible college just within a mile of the church where I was, I was uh, working with about 150 young people. And I, I had this idea of getting some of the college students to come over and mentor my kids. And so Vit was one of those that I had in mind. And this is, this is without guile here. This is pure. So Vit, Vit came um, on a Wednesday night to our prayer meeting, and uh, I asked her out for coffee. And I said, uh, you know, I've got some ideas for our youth ministry I'd like to run by you. I really did. But, you know, if I can kill two birds with one stone, that, that'll work too. So we headed out. We sat and had coffee. I thought we'd be together about an hour. And three hours later, we were still talking. And for me, Vit was the first girl. Vit's faith in Christ was reasonably new. She came to Christ um, uh, in her teens, and her coming to Bible college was a real major thing that God did uh, coming out of an Italian Catholic home. Vit was the first girl that when I um, heard her talk about Jesus, I'd been raised in, in, I'd only dated ever Christian girls. I'd been raised in a pretty conservative background. Vit was the first girl I ever talked to that, it was like she really knew Jesus, like there was something really going on there. The rest of us were trying to kind of outgrow a little bit some of that. Vit was in love with Jesus, and I fell in love with that. So we started dating uh, pretty quickly. And, um, well, let's just say we started, we, we dated August 2nd. We were engaged November and married in April. How did we reach that point where we started talking about marriage? It was not love at first sight. I, I, I don't know that you can even say that. To suggest that you can like fall in love like it's this uh, virus you can catch also means that you can somehow get, get cured from the virus and fall out of love. I, I don't believe in that. But I remember one night uh, we'd gone out and we were talking and we just were suddenly talking about marriage. It wasn't like I, we had to even think about it. So what I can tell you is that there was never a moment with Vit where I worried that she didn't feel like I did, where I wondered if she'd say yes or no. We just reached this point where we realized we were talking about marriage, and we knew our life would never be the same, but we both knew we were ready for it. So. Here is how I know I reached a point where I loved my wife, where I loved Vit. I thought about life without her and realized I couldn't imagine it. So it's not like I can say there was this time and a moment when I fell in love. There was definitely a moment when I declared that love. But the understanding, the falling in love was a process. I think that's exactly how it happens for most of us with Jesus. We like to turn it into, into this moment of decision as though, you know, I was blind and poof, somebody preached and boom, I came to Jesus and now I see, as though it's an event. Because we like that, you know, Jesus used the idea of a new birth. And there, there's legitimacy to that. But at what point in this journey did the disciples reach the point where they actually were stopping just following Jesus and we're actually believing in him. That's what I want to look at just quickly with you today. And we're looking at John chapter 6. So turn there with me. Last week we looked at the 
high times, the second year of Jesus' ministry, which was his year of popularity. We are just about now in John 6, about to enter into his final year of ministry, which was the year of opposition. Lines are beginning to be drawn. Jesus is doing more than just tilling the soil and preaching about the kingdom and performing miracles. Now he's beginning to really press the issue of belief. What has happened up until this point in John chapter 6 is that Jesus has fed the 5,000, which is actually probably more like 12 or 13,000, maybe even more than that, because the 5,000 were just men. So you've got uh, women, children, all part of this. So this huge miracle, Jesus now disappears because the crowds believe now that he's fed them. This is, a, this is like Moses and the manna in the wilderness. This is like he's got to be the Messiah. They want to take and put him on the throne right away. So Jesus disappears. And the disciples get in a boat. Jesus meets them on the water. One of the calmings of the storm is in that encounter. And then they come to the opposite side of the water. So we pick up the story at verse 22 of chapter 6. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. And then some boats came from Tiberias, landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. The same crowd that was fed to overflowing by uh, the miracle of the feeding. Verse 25, when they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Now, this is beginning to press the point, coming to the crossroads. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked, well, what miraculous sign then will you give that, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. So you get the feeling that they were hinting here, right? So give us a sign. Now our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's our idea of a good sign. And then Jesus goes on, and for sake of time, we won't read the, the whole passage he really speaks about, he says, it's not about your bellies being filled. It's about partaking of me. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. There's a crossroads. It's not just about coming. It's about believing. He goes on. There's quite a bit of discourse about it. It's getting difficult. And we pick up the conversation in verse 60. On hearing all of this, many of his disciples, that means people that had been following him at least for some season of time, that's why they called him their rabbi, many of his disciples said, listen to this, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? 
Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, <laughs> this is interesting, Jesus is pushing it now. Now he's backing them into a corner. He's not saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, we, we've got time to wrestle with this. Uh, back down, cool your jets. He takes it up another notch. Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And then he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. All right, so this is some of those hard sayings of Jesus that we talk about. What was the impact on his first followers of this hard statement? Read on, verse 66. From this time on, many of his disciples made their choice. They turned back and no longer followed him. Now, this is the important moment I want you to see here. Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks, Do you want to leave also? Crossroads. Are you going to continue the journey with me? Are you going to take the next step? Are you going to leave? And here's their response. Simon Peter answered him, and he's speaking for all of them. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. At what point did Peter and the others come to believe that? At what point were they aware that they believed it? Uh, it would be wrong for me to put my own interpretation as fact, but here's, uh, here's what I do think. I think that they were getting it all along, but it took a moment like this where it mattered and it meant something for them to say, and, and it began with this point, where else can we go? That's an interesting point. It's a point that says, I, I really don't see any other options first. In C.S. Lewis's own conversion, he talks about how he came to Christ. Now, you need to understand, he was already a professor when he came to faith. In fact, he was an atheist. He was raised as an Irish Catholic, and then uh, he turned away from God completely, very similar to Noel's story. And as a professor, he actively agreed with Freud, Sigmund Freud, one of his contemporaries, and was a strong, ardent atheist. And then at some point in his 30s, he was part of a group called the Inklings. The Inklings include such uh, authors as J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, Charles Williams, great author. If you want to read some weird stuff, read Charles Williams. The Inklings were this group that themselves were discovering. J.R. Tolkien was a very committed Christian. And so through those conversations, Lewis began a journey. And it was not this, I was blind and now I see. It was a journey of discovery. And the thing he says was that the first part of his conversion was simply being converted to theism. His options began to narrow. He writes it this way. It must be understood that my conversion at that point was only to theism, pure and simple. I knew nothing yet about the Incarnation. The God to whom I surrendered was sheerly non-human. Interesting first step, the journey narrowing down. Where else do I land except that there must be a God? 
At first, he was attracted to all religions because he found the mythology of all religions as an opportunity to discover God metaphorically. He was most attracted to Hinduism and then to Christianity. And it was through conversations with Jared Tolkien and others that he came to see there is a historical reality in Christianity based on God taking on human form and stepping into history. And it was through that dialogue, and especially the writings of G.K. Uh, Chesterton, that Lewis had to face the reality that Christianity could not just be one great world religion. In the same way these people in John 6 saw it, what Jesus taught was so clear about himself that either it was true or he needed to be consigned to a fringe lunatic. And it was out of that set of ideas that Lewis came up with what we now know in his great argument in the book Mere Christianity, the idea of Jesus either being a liar, a madman, a con man, or the God man. And it was out of that that he reached a point where he said, well, where else can I go? He talks about this, as I drew near to Christianity, I felt a resistance almost as strong as my previous resistance to theism. As strong but shorter lived, for I understood it better. But each step, one had less chance to call one's soul his own. So he felt this drawing. And then when he describes his conversion, this is what he says. Now just picture those of you that have fallen in love with someone. Uh, just picture how similar what C.S. Lewis describes is. He writes, I know very well when, but hardly know how, the final step was taken. I went with my brother to have a picnic at Whipsnade Zoo. We started in fog, but by the end of our journey, the sun was shining. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. And I love this. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, becomes aware that he is now awake. What a beautiful, authentic telling of how I think faith is birthed in us. It's not a work of our decision-making. It's a work of God. We're on a journey, and we reach a point where we recognize that when we consider a future without Jesus as our Lord, we can't imagine it. And like the disciples, we say, where else can I go? You alone have the words of life. So just as in the journey that the first disciples took, Jesus takes us and lovingly teaches us to walk in him, helps us to understand as we take that journey, we see God signs, God's sightings in our life. Our faith grows, and then at the right moment, Jesus pushes, he presses. He puts us at a point of commitment, takes us to the precipice, and then asks us, are you going to leave? And their first response is, where else will we go? It's only a few weeks later in Matthew 16 that Jesus is having another conversation with them. And he asks this question. So, what's the going idea about me? Who do people say that I am? 
That, that conversation happens a lot of times around coffee shop tables and dinner tables and different places. And they talked in the general sense of it. And then Jesus turned to them as inevitably he turns to each of us. And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I don't think it suddenly occurred to Peter, but it was the right moment to declare it. It was the right moment to say, this is where I've come, and on this I stand. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love that thought, that Jesus brings us along and just lovingly presses us to the point where he says, now you can't just stay where you are. You can't just enjoy the journey and the curiosity because there is life ahead of you. In, um, we won't go there because we're going to close, but uh, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses does the same thing to the new generation of Israel that is about to enter the promised land. The previous generation couldn't get there. They were so racked by their past that when they really came to that point of decision, that precipice of belief, as a generation, they chose not to believe that God could give them the promised land. And so that whole generation failed. And now a new generation has come up, and Moses, who is now old, he's not going to go with them into the promised land, but he's exhorting them, getting them ready. As he's talked to them about the choices they have to make, he says to them, what I've put in front of you is as plain as day. You don't have to be a philosopher to get it. It's right here. And it's life or death. And then you can hear his heart when he says to them, choose life.